We're going to open back up to Matthew. Looking at the 15th chapter, we need to read a few verses at the end of the 14th that I think is important um, as we try to transition into chapter 15. If you remember where we finished last time, we talked about the walking on the water of Peter and how he uh, walked by the power of Christ as he was trying to follow Christ by faith. Be quiet. And we kind of spoke about how neat it was that the same power that was working in Christ that allowed Christ to walk on the water allowed Peter to walk on the water. And so we wanted to make sure we drew that parallel that when we're facing the problems that we face in, in regards to our calling, because we talked about that that was a good picture of the calling of Christ, how Christ calls us to go. You know, they were going across the ship. They were in the ship going across the water because Christ said, get in the ship and go across the water, knowing full well what they were going to face when they went across there. Uh, he didn't send them and go, oh, no, look what I did. I sent them into a storm. No, he said, no, go. And I know you're going into a storm. And in the middle of the storm, I'll, I'm going to meet you on the water. So Christ knew exactly what he was doing when he sent them. He knew what they were going to face when he sent them. And when they got into trouble in the middle of the sea, he came to them and he spoke to them. And we know the story there. But as we were going through that, we were talking about how the power of Christ was within Peter to be able to get out and walk on the water. And that as we go through our calling, as we walk through this world, as we are going through the places where Christ has called us to, sending us places where sometimes we don't understand why or don't necessarily, in some cases, you know, naturally want to go, that in it all the same power of Christ dwells within us to face anything and to go through anything that we come in contact with. So it's important for us to rely through faith, which is what the whole kind of message was in there. To rely on faith of whatever we're facing, that Christ is in the matter and Christ's power dwells with us and he will get us through. So as we go forward from there, we look in verse 32 and we talked about how when they got back to the ship, it was the wind ceased and then the ship, they got uh, to the shore. And when they got to the shore, it says that they had gone over and they had come into the land of Gennesaret. And this is getting back to an area where Jesus had already been once. In fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 8, where he meets the uh, Gadarene, you have him coming into the area where the, the ancient times would describe that whole area on kind of the eastern side of the Galilee as being the Decapolis, the ten provinces there. Now, they were like 99% Gentile, all right? So this wasn't like a Jewish community. There were mostly Gentile people there. And if you remember that story, that's where he heals the, the, what we call the wild Gadarene man or the man who was from Gadaria um, or Gennesaret or Garganese or wherever, whatever they kind of called that area in those regions there. That when he healed that man and he removed him, remember, he cast the demon out into the swine and then the people got really mad about that. And they said, Jesus, get out of our land. We don't want you here. You know, this is this is too much. OK. And we talked about how that guy was the first kind of disciple evangelist in that region. When he got healed, he told Jesus, I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, you go back home and you tell all your family and your friends and your neighbors of what great things God has done to you. And it says that he went and published wide in the Decapolis all the things that God had done for him. And there was 
many conversions that came from that. Now, that's a change of scene compared to now, a few chapters later, when Jesus returns to that side in the area of the Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Now that's a completely different, completely different kind of reception at this point than last time. If you look over in Mark's account, I think it describes this, that the whole land of the Decapolis came out to him. Okay, So now you have the... And we need to keep that in mind. The reason that's important and the reason why I think it's here, again, you, you, you get all these kind of recurring themes of things that Christ has done and where Christ has gone and people bring all these death and things like that. But catch this, that Jesus is going back to an area where that one evangelist had gone back and done his work and you have a completely changed heart and mindset towards him before it was get out of here you freak us out now it's get everybody and take him to jesus because he is able and not only that it would be one thing if this was just like any other of the healings where people had just thronged him and he healed them by grace and mercy but they had a different mindset altogether it says that they besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched were made perfectly whole that ties in with the young woman who had the issue of blood that we talked about with J. Iris's daughter and healing and the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. And as we have talked about on Leviticus on Wednesday nights, as we were talking about just this past week, and what I tried to bring up and, remember, and remind you is remember how that a woman who had an issue of blood until it stopped was unclean and could not be in the presence of other people. She had to be kind of outcast. If it never stopped, she was still ritually unclean, which means she could not enter into the temple. She could not enter into the tabernacle. She could not partake in the religious services to God. She was an outcast. She was ostracized. She had to walk around, you know, with her wrap on and say that she was unclean. So she lived a very bleak existence. She lived a very outsider existence and a very sad, depressed existence. And we know her story. She crawled on her hands and knees through the throng of people just to be able to grab the hem of his garment. Because she also said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I will be healed. Nobody is very macho. Nobody is very swaggerish when they're crawling on their knees just to grab someone's dirty garment hem. And I think that's what you get here. The picture that he is trying to paint is of these people who by a true heart of faith and, and humility are humbly just trying to scrape at Christ the best they can compared to the ones we're about to talk about again. And I'm, I've kind of, I've been thinking about this, that every chapter we go through, it seems like we have an encounter with the Pharisees where Christ basically says, you people, you know, you people are wicked godless i mean he just every chapter is like you think at some point jesus would be like okay jesus you can quit preaching about that we get it the pharisees are bad we understand but i think after we start looking into some of the things in this chapter i think i kind of finally have come to the reason why in my mind christ repetitively goes through again and again and again and again 
to warn his disciples about the nature of the religion that the Pharisees are preaching. Okay. So in chapter 15, he goes on and he says, then came Jesus, uh, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem. So they had traveled up north to the region of Galilee from Jerusalem saying, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father and his mother, he shall be free." Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draws nigh unto me with their mouths, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, what's, again, very interesting about this section of Scripture and what Christ is trying to teach, what Christ is trying to draw out from the Pharisees here. They had come up and they'd attacked him because the Jewish followers of Jesus were not doing the things that all Jews had been trained they were supposed to do. Okay, Good Jewish people followed the traditions of the elders or the previous teachers that had come before them, and the tradition that had been handed down for many, many, many generations was that you were supposed to wash your hands before you ate bread. Now, you know, again, we've said it before that that's just a very good, you know, any southern mama would teach that to their kids, always wash your hands before you eat, okay? That in and of itself is not some kind of ungodly, you know, tradition, uh, now, it was a tradition, and he calls it that very clearly because it was not part of the Mosaic law. It was not something that was commanded by God. God nowhere in the Old Testament said, you must wash your hands before you eat dinner. Now, he did command the priests that they had to ritualistically clean before they touched any of the holy things of the tabernacle service or the temple service. But there was no such prescription for the children of Israel. They were not required to wash before they ate. It was a tradition that was developed. And some commentators would say that the tradition was developed based off of the principle that God gave regarding the priests. If the priests were required to wash before they ate the sacrifices, then it just made kind of some good sense that maybe the lay people needed to wash before they ate the food that was blessed by God. Okay? Ipso facto, you get this kind of thing going on. Okay? So it's not a bad tradition wasn't like it was an, a bad thing now what was bad about this situation and it's kind of what the million dollar question is today what rules supreme what rules supreme in our lives in the universe what rules supreme the commandments of god or the ways we've always done it what rules supreme? The commandments of God or the way we've always done it? The Jewish people here, these Pharisees, had this problem. Okay? 
Number one, we know what their problem was, okay? Their problem has been expressed clearly by Christ in numerous chapters beforehand. So it wasn't like this tradition was somehow the thing that was the the Pharisees' problem here. Their issue was a heart issue, and that's what Jesus goes at here in just a little bit. But they were hung up on the tradition thing because they were looking for an excuse to call out his disciples and say, look how you aren't really a follower of our religion. Okay? And that was important because for to be of any kind of credible source, well, you needed to say that you were coming in the vein of the Jewish religion. I mean, that's what Jesus' claim to fame was. I'm not some new religion. I'm not some new thing. I am the fulfillment of every one of your Old Testament prophecies. You search the scriptures. You think the scriptures have eternal life. And I'm telling you, they testify of me. I am your scriptures embodied. So whenever they had these little causes to come up here, they do this with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Remember, they came up and brought this woman to Jesus to test him and say, what do you say we should do with this woman? Because Moses says she is to be stoned. So they were always looking for little ways to be able to grab him and go, see how you are really not following what we have always done Going back to Moses. And therefore you are not who you say you are. You are an outsider. You are just trying to take parts of our religion. And blend it into this new thing. But really you're trying to undo all the things that we've always done. And you're just a heretic. And you're just another false professor. And we don't need to follow you. So like we said. The traditions in themselves are not that bad. It's not that bad to wash your hands before you eat. In fact, Jesus could have turned around and said, Hey, disciples, you know what? It really would be a good idea if you did. I mean, your hands are pretty nasty. We've been walking around. You've been on a boat. Uh, you've been handling fishes and loaves and all this stuff. I mean, it's be good. If you're going to be good hygiene, wash your hands, okay? But that wasn't the issue. Their heart was the issue. Their heart was looking for a transgression where there was not a transgression, Okay? And in addition to that, they were holding transgressions against their tradition higher than they were holding transgression against the commandments of God. That's where it got bad, okay? That's where this became an insurmountable problem. It also goes where... People will kind of, you know, it, the, the, what we talked about back in Rome, in, um, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, when we talk about judge not. And we talked about getting the beam out of your eye so you can clearly see the moat and all these things, okay? This is a clear textbook example of the Pharisees practicing eye surgery with two very bad eyes, okay? I've got a beam in my eye. I'm clearly transgressing the commandments of God, but I'm trying to find this splinter in your eye and draw it out and say, look how you aren't doing what you're supposed to do. And Jesus says, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. In fact, you're worse because you're breaking actually the laws of God. They're breaking a tradition that you could argue is beneficial, but it has no no staying power. It's just a tradition. If tomorrow we all decided, hey, let's go crazy and not wash our hands, you will not have interrupted the power of the universe. But if you walk out here and say, 
hey, you know what, mom and dad, I know I'm supposed to take care of you and I know it's commanded of God that I'm supposed to honor you in that way. But look, here's the thing. I have just, I had this burden on my heart. I am so just into this holy thing that I decided to take the money that I was going to give to you, that I'm supposed to give to you, that I'm commanded of God to give to you, to honor you, support you and help you. Instead, you know what, I, did a, I, I, I gave it to the temple. I gave it all to the temple. Aren't you proud of your son? Aren't you proud of me? I gave all that money to the temple. Praise be to God. Aren't we happy that we did that? That's what they did. They did what God told them not to do. Or they did, let me correct that. They didn't do what God told them to do. But, you know, they kind of, it's almost like like money laundering. Okay? I ran it through the temple to make it holy so that it would look like I really wasn't doing what I really was doing, which was not doing what God commanded us to do. Oh, yeah, I gave that money to the temple. You know, it just it was better that way. They needed it. It was a greater thing. I know you're destitute now. (laughs) I know you're going to suffer now. I know you're going to have problems now. But look, I just I mean, it's just the Lord's will. And I gave it to the temple and that's just how it ended. I'm sorry. So Jesus says, here you are trying to condemn these brothers for transgressing the tradition and you are breaking the law, which to these Pharisees would have been a tremendous slap in the face. And then he goes on to some of his clearest, clearest teaching about the nature of the heart of these Pharisees. You hypocrites. And that was never used as a very casual term. Okay, Jesus didn't throw that around. All right. He didn't look at Peter just in the last chapter when Peter would say, Lord, I'll follow you unto death. And then Jesus go, you hypocrite. You will not. You're going to deny me on the third time of the cross. You're such a liar. You're such. He doesn't throw this word around lightly. He uses it like a surgeon's blade and it's to cut the hearts of these wicked hearted Pharisees. And he's I mean, you get into one of these chapters, he'll go through it the whole time. I mean, like every other subsection is woe to you hypocrites and Pharisees scribe. Woe to you hypocrites. Woe to you hypocrites. I mean, over and over again, he's using this and he's using it in regards to these people. But he makes a point to say there, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you that you draw nigh to me with your mouth and honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Now, what's interesting about that and something that I think is really important to kind of grab there is notice that these people are drawing nigh to God. Now, it's in show. With their mouths, they're doing it. With their mouths, they're honoring him with their lips. They're drawing nigh to him with their mouth. They're honoring him with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Basically saying they are doing a lot of show religion, but their heart is nowhere close to being for me. That's what these Pharisees, I mean, we've been saying this this whole time. The Pharisees looked great from the outside. They were perfect in their law keeping. They were perfect in their religious rituals. They were perfect in all these things that they did. The only place they weren't perfect is their wicked heart. And you say, oh, well, why would they do that? Why would they go? If they don't have a heart for God, if they don't really desire God, if they don't really love God, why would they do all this? Well, Jesus has already answered that. 
He entered it way back at the very beginning of all this in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They like to stand on the street corner so people can see them pray and go, Oh, look how pious they are. They like to wear their long robes and their phylacteries, which were basically the tassels off of their, their prayer shawls, so that they can go, Oh, look how holy they are. They like to stand in the temple and say, Lord, thank you that you didn't make me like this filthy, dirty tax collector. So they could show how righteous they were. And over and over again, God would say, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't get their prayers because they're praying on the street corner. They got their reward. It wasn't for me. They gave their alms so everybody could see. They got their reward. It wasn't me. They prayed in the temple. The tax collector went away justified. They did not. And here he says, they draw nigh to me with their mouths. They draw nigh to me with, their, with the way that they're talking, with the way that they're walking and their actions. They're drawing, quote unquote, nigh to me. They're looking like they really, really, really want to do what I have commanded. But in, in reality, it's all a show. They're hypocrites. That's the definition of that. That's why they're hypocrites. Because they look and act like they're one thing when they really are not. They don't care anything about this. As evidence, they don't care about Christ. So he's calling them out. And that's why I think, again, what I was saying when we first got started, I think this is why Christ continually goes back to this. He says, you're going to be drawn and attracted and be deceived by their fake religious actions. You're going to be drawn in and deceived by their fake religious actions. You're going to see them praying on the street corner and go, oh, they must be holy people. And I'm going to tell you, if you just sat back and watched their lives, you would realize they weren't. You're going to be drawn in because they're always at temple. Man, they're the most faithful temple goers there are. And look how pious they are. And look at the tassels off their robes and all this stuff. Man, all that must mean something. That must mean they're really, really holy people. And Christ would say, no, they're a bunch of hypocrites. In fact, to go another place, I'd say they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like a sheep. They are not. They're a wolf. And they're come to destroy. You say, well, why do we talk about all this? Because the picture that Jesus will give you, the picture that Jesus will say over and over again of a true follower of him through the faith given them by Christ is a dirty, wretched, unclean woman crawling on the ground to grab his garment. Or a bunch of unclean, wicked Gentiles out of Decapolis who would never be visited by one of these holy rollers in their prayer shawls. They're the ones that are crawling on the ground to get to Jesus. We're going to see in just a minute as he talks about this woman, this Canaanite woman who begs Jesus. That's going to be the example of faith, the true believer that he's going to give. He said, don't be deceived by the show. Don't be, don't be deceived, deceived by the stuff on the outside. Don't be deceived by the name on his badge. Don't be deceived by the clothes that he's wearing. Don't be deceived by any of that. Instead, you're going to look at his actions. You're going to see how he really acts because I'm going to tell you that their 
fruit is going to bear out. I mean, this is, this is what he's been going through all the time. And eventually I get to the point where I'm going, man, Jesus must really just not like these guys. Like he just, every chapter he keeps bringing stuff up about them. But I think the reason, at least like I said, in my opinion, the reason he keeps bringing this up is because he's trying to pull the disciples into what it really looks like. This is a problem that starts facing them as they get into the New Testament church. That's why Paul writes letters in Rome saying, look, you've got to understand it's not the works that makes the difference. If it's the works, then it would be all by works and it wouldn't be by grace. And so he's telling them, you've got to not worry. It's not the works that are doing it. So yes, you can pray on the street corners. You can give alms. You can wear the right robes. You can have the longest tassels. And I'm telling you, those works will never get you into heaven. He says, no, it's by grace. And it has to be by grace. That's why James writes his letter and would say, I'm going to show you what pure religion is. You're going to say it meet a bunch of people who go, oh, yeah, I believe I have faith. And James would say, well, where are your works then? And that doesn't contradict what Paul was writing about. He was just saying, I don't believe that a dead faith is a real thing. He says, I see your faith should be bearing out some kind of works. Because what Jesus says, if you are a tree that has been made good, then guess what your fruit's going to be? You don't pick, as you would say, as, you know, paraphrasing, you don't pick apples from briars. So he goes forward. He, he, James is writing that too, saying, look, guys, you're going to have, you are going to face a surface level religion problem. And what I don't want you to be deceived by is thinking that just because someone participates in a religious activity that they are a true believer in Jesus Christ. There is a lot of people in this world that call themselves Christians and don't act like Christ said to act. And it's important for us not to be deceived by that, especially when it's in our secular leaders in this world. To be drawn into the, oh, they say they're a Christian. They say they're a Christian. Yeah, they've, they've like cheated on their wives four or five times. And yes, they use absolutely atrocious language. And they talk about people like they're dogs. But they're a Christian. I promise they are. No, they're not. That's not what Christ did. And that's not what Christians should do. Oh, well, they're a good Christian person. I mean, they hate those people, but man, they're a good Christian person. Well, I'm confused because John said, if I hate my brother, it's the same as murder. So that doesn't make sense. So that's why we go back, not how it's always been. Just because of a tradition, just because it's how we've always done, we've always whatever, that doesn't mean a thing. It's what are the commands of God and then are we following them? That's what true belief, true following of Christ is. So it's important for us today to get that as well. Or else we're deceived. That's where I think we get in such bad press lately. It's not because of true Christians out there doing what they are, are supposed to do. I mean, you don't get the, you don't get the bad press for somebody to be like, oh yeah, did you see those dirty, filthy, rotten Christians? They're just loving on all these people. I just can't stand it. Look how they just give up their time to help people who are needy, poor, refugee, homeless, whatever. Look how they're just doing all that. Aren't they just awful people? It's the hypocrites 
that give us the bad names. It's the hypocrites that give us the bad names. It's the hypocrites that have... It's always been that way. It's professing Christians marching in clan rallies. That's been a bad name, okay? That's called hypocrite. You can't hate your brother and be a Christian. That doesn't work. So that's where we get the bad name from. Not from the true believers trying to live out what Christ did, but because of the believers who say they follow Christ and act in ways that are completely contrary to what Christ said. You can grow up in the South. You can go to the right Baptist church. You can be baptized the right way three times. You can go through all that stuff. But if we aren't living like Christ said, we are not followers of Christ. We're something else. Maybe we're just traditionalists. Maybe we're just traditional Christians. I'm sure the Pharisees thought they were Jews, right? All those promises that God had made to Abraham, all those things, I'm keeping right and law with that. And I mean, Christ would on many occasions say, I'm going to say it's going to be really disappointing for you one day because the children of the kingdom, you people who think you are children of the kingdom, are going to be sitting on the outside wailing and gnashing teeth while people from the east and the west and the north and the south come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. So it's important for us to not be deceived, just like I feel like Christ is trying to teach his disciples here. And he goes forward. He'll say, And he called the multitudes unto them and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth out of a man defileth him, but that which cometh, I'm sorry, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth defiles a man. And his, then came his disciples and said to him, Knowest not, or I'm sorry, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? And Jesus answered and said, Every plant which my f- heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare to us what this means. And Jesus said, Are you also without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth into at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the toilet, basically. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not. Now, again, what's important for us to grab out of that? And really, if you look back when he's talking about the verse from Isaiah, in the same way, Isaiah was not prophesying, per se, about these Pharisees, okay? He was prophesying about Jews in his day who were doing the exact same thing, okay? That were faking it. Oh, we're, Jew- we're the Jewish people, we're Israel, we're God's nation, we've got the temple, all this stuff, and then yet we're like burning incense to Baal in the temple, and we're doing all the things God commanded us not to do. But we're God's people, we're the Israelites. And Isaiah condemned them in the same way and said, yeah, and get ready because God's about to send the Babylonians and he's about to send the Syrians and they're going to come in and destroy you because you are not living like my people were commanded to live. 
But notice the condemnation that Jesus gives to him. So Isaiah condemns his group of people at that point in time and says, you draw nigh to me with your lips, you honor me with your lips, you draw nigh to me, draws nigh to me with their mouths, honor me with your lips, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear towards me is taught by the precept of men. You have turned the fear of the Lord, which is supposed to be a heart-given matter, that when the heart is regenerated and knowing God, it is fearful of Him in His awe and majesty and power. We realize who we are in the scheme of the cosmos, okay? He says, instead, you've taught it like it's a precept of men. Oh yeah, fear the Lord. What does that mean? Well, you just you better make sure you mind your P's and Q's and you know, do these things right because God's a, God's a wrathful God. Complete just sterilization of everything about what he had originally set out when he took them out of the land of Egypt. And he condemns them and says, part of his condemnation was, he says, I'm going to do a marvelous work among you, even a marvelous work and wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. The same kind of thing, he, language he uses there of the blind leading the blind. He'll go on to say, these are like blind men. They think they know a lot. In fact, if you ask the Pharisees, they would not say they were blind concerning the scriptures, but Christ will go, they're blind concerning the scriptures. They search them for eternal life and they can't see that it's me. He said, so let them alone. They're blind, lead, and they'll lead the other blind and they'll all go fall in the ditch. But the other thing that he talks about there, which is an interesting condemnation, is the being rooted up and removed. Okay? So this is obviously an active thing, right? To root somebody up, you've got to actually go out there and grab them and pull them up. Okay? Christ here is kind of giving... Because you get the idea that at some point this is going to go to blows. Okay? At some point, the disciples, like Peter, who already we we know from reading ahead, has a tendency to just want to pull a sword out and cut some people's ear off when they're trying to offend Jesus. Okay, here you got to got to get the picture at some point that they're like, well, why if we're if the Pharisees are this bad, let's just get rid of them, Jesus. Let's be done with it. You know, maybe you call out some fire, let's burn some people up, or let's do you know, let's pull it like Jonah, let's do some stuff here. Jesus, when he was revealing the parables, makes the point of talking about the sower and the, I mean, the weeds and the tear, the wheat and the tares. And he tells his angels in that parable, we're going to leave them like it is. The tares will grow right up alongside the wheat because I don't want you to, which again, you, could you accidentally pluck up an, I don't, I don't know if that's real, a reality, but he makes a point of saying, nope, everything's going to stay just like it is till the end times. Then we're going to separate this. It's all going to be taken care of. In the same way, Jesus is kind of telling him here, telling his disciples here, leave them alone. Number one, because they're blind. And just by the natural effects of being blind and walking out here like you think you know where you're going, you're eventually going to fall in a ditch. So he's like, it'll be taken care of almost in that way. Don't worry about it. They'll go over here and they'll fall in a ditch. I don't even have to move them in that direction. They're blind and they're running headlong through this world. Eventually, they're going to run right into the ditch along with all the other blind people. But the being uprooted thing was kind of interesting when you start studying it. So you have God actively removing the offending plant, so to speak, in this case. He's going to root the Pharisees up and those like him, like God is rooting up weeds out of his garden. So this kind of ties in with the language that you get from John chapter 15, where God says, I'm going to cut out every branch that's not bearing fruit. He says, I'm the husbandman. My vine's going to be clean. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit is taken away. 
Okay, so you already get the imagery here. God's a good garden keeper, okay? He doesn't lay back. He doesn't get lazy. He doesn't let weeds overgrow. I mean, he handles his business the way that he chooses to handle his business. Now, the interesting thing is that when you start looking at it, though, because you would say, well, the Pharisees didn't go away immediately, did they? It's not like God just walked over there and said, yep, you, boom, you know, you're done, out of here. You didn't see them, like, visibly get picked up ethereally and scream as they're being plucked up out of the ground. You don't, you don't get that pain. That would have been neat. We would have probably liked to see that. Probably something that would have come out of like a Monty Python skit. But if you read in the book of Jude, you will get an interesting kind of picture on what this actually is. So in the book of Jude, chapter 1, by the way. If you go through the book of Jude, starting in verse 4, he will warn his church and say, make sure you hold to the things that have been taught to you. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our Lord or our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then as you scroll down into verse 12, he'll say, These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots." Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These are ungodly, wicked people who have come in to the church in Jude's day, are sitting down at their feast, like that charity feast that he's talking about there. Was That's historically, as we talk about having communion, they actually had a what was called a love feast or a charity feast. And that was part of it. It was a bigger to-do than just sitting here and breaking some bread. I mean, it was they had it like they did at the Last Supper time. They had a meal. Okay, And he's saying, you've got these people sitting in amongst your meal. And he's saying, these people are like, and he goes through the clouds without rain and all this stuff. But what's interesting is the way he describes them. He describes these people as trees without fruit or fruit that has withered, i.e. trees without fruit. And he says they're twice dead and they're plucked up by the roots. So then when you see, but they're, they're sitting in church with these people. Now, these people are making their, their hearts known very well because they're coming out and they're kind of taking the things of God and they're twisting them into lasciviousness. They're denying God. They're denying Jesus. That's how you know these people are who they are. But notice the description of their status right here. While they are living right here, he describes them as twice dead and plucked up by the roots. Now, when you look at the Pharisees and when you look when Jesus describes them as as weeds that are going to be dealt with. You get the picture that God and his sovereign action in this way, just like in Jude, that these people are going to be living dead people in this way. They're not plucked up as in removed completely. In fact, in Jude's case, they were still very much present there. In this case, the Pharisees are still going to be around. These kind of 
pharisaical, law-based deniers of Christ are going to continue past Matthew chapter 15 because we read about it in Acts, we read about it in Galatians, we read about it in Ephesians, we read about it in Jude. But he says there's something wrong with their heart. They're twice dead and they're plucked up by the roots. They have no more sustenance or, I guess you could say, sustenance obtaining ability at all. Their roots are plucked up. You look at the tree that Jesus walks up to that wasn't bearing fruit. Remember, it was in the time and the season. It was supposed to be bearing fruit. He sees it from afar. It's got leaves on it. looks like it should be bearing fruit. And then he gets up to it and he's not. And he says, no more. Tree, as they come back by, is withered up by the roots. Now, that is the most interesting thing, I think, that Jesus does while he's walking here on this world. That's the one that everybody's going, why? I mean, even Peter goes, why and how? Look at it. It's already withered up. Like, why did you do this, Jesus? That poor tree. What did it do? Jesus' testimony. And that was, by the way, on his way into Jerusalem. He's, and I've, I've always had this picture from it. Ever since I went back and kind of studied and looked at it. He's walking towards Jerusalem. The city of God. The place where David conquered and set up his throne. The first temple was built there. This fake artifice temple is there in its place. But this, the temple was there. This is the place where God said, I'm going to dwell in your midst forever. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, my city. He says, and he sees it from afar and it looks like his city. It looks like the city that David dwelt in. It looks like the city back in the days when they used to follow God. But now it's a city filled with a bunch of people who look a lot like David and what David did. Who do a lot of stuff like the Jews had always done. Who drew nigh to him with his, their mouths, but their heart was far from him. It says, it looks like my city, but it's not bearing the fruit that my city is supposed to bear. On his way to that city, he sees a tree from afar that looks like a tree that should be bearing fruit. And when he gets to it, he realizes there's no fruit on the branches. So he curses it. It withers up by the roots. I think in that exact same way, you see him here dealing with the Pharisees. He says, they're going to they're gonna wither. It's fine. Leave them alone. Daddy's going to take care of it. He's going to handle this. They will be aimless, waterless people. They may still be trying to draw nigh to him with their mouths and with their lips. They may still try to get men's acclaim and accord by doing these religious things. But the heart of Christ where they truly love, desire to do what God calls them to do is not there. So it's important for us and what he's telling them here, what he's trying to get them to understand. And that's why he goes forward and tells them it's not about what goes in your mouth. I mean, again, you I don't think the the, the apostles and the disciples were struggling with that. Oh, Lord, no. Now are we defiled because we ate something with dirty hands? Is that I don't think that's what they were really having a hang up on. Obviously, they weren't because they weren't doing that tradition. You know, that's why they were condemned. Obviously, they didn't care about it. It wasn't really weighing on their hearts too much. So Jesus was not addressing this to kind of clarify for them so that they understood better why the tradition didn't matter. He was going at their hearts and he was saying, you need to remember 
that it's your heart that is the problem, not your hands. And see, that's where it gets with us. We get very focused a lot of times on how to control our hands, how to control our mouths, how to control our eyes, how to control our minds. And if we focus too much on those specific aspects of our problem, then we will get very ritualistic and we might come up with some good habits that would help us prevent or stop or not do what we don't want to do, but we haven't addressed the real issue. All these Pharisees were doing everything right externally. They still had a really big problem. Their heart was wicked. With us, sometimes when we look at the problems, the temptations, the trials, whatever it is that we're facing... Sometimes it'll be all about the external stuff. Say, oh, well, make sure that you do this with your computer or make sure you don't get around these people. And all those things are good. I mean, those are not bad things. Just like washing your hands before you eat is not a bad thing. But what Christ is going forward to continue to reiterate with them is that the external things are not the end game. You have to be focused on the heart. You can say all day, well, I didn't actually use my hands to strangle my brother, but I hate his guts. Well, guess what? Christ says you're guilty of murder. Well, but I didn't actually do it with my hands. I prevented that. I had a good accountability partner, and I worked through the murder thing, and I didn't actually kill him. Hey, I don't care. Your heart is wicked. You hate your brother. You're guilty of murder. Oh, well, but I had all the protection on my computer and I didn't commit adultery. I didn't actually go chase that woman. I didn't get her on Instagram or whatever. I just, I didn't actually do that. I'm not guilty. No, your heart lusted after her. You're just as guilty of adultery. Jesus, at the very beginning of his teaching and right here, is reiterating the same principle. You can go through whatever 12-step program you want to and get your hands as clean as you want to. But if you haven't addressed the issue of the heart, you're always going to fail. And you always have people that come back 10, 20, 30 years later and go, well, man, I really thought I had that thing licked. I really thought I had that sin under control. I really thought I had that problem in the bag. I didn't think it was going to bother me anymore. Well, how did you accomplish it? Well, man, I had this program and I did these things and I cut this out of my life. Well, but did you address the heart? Were you seeking God to change your heart? Were you seeking God to remove that from your heart? Were you, were you asking God to do something to the root cause of the problem so that it didn't come back? I mean, you can fill in potholes all day. But if you don't, uh, if you don't address the undermining that's going on that keeps recreating the pothole, then you're never going to get ahead. Say, oh, well, I filled it in with all this concrete and asphalt and rebar and all this stuff. I thought that was going to fix it. Yeah, but did you take care of the real problem underneath that keeps washing out everything? Because if you didn't, then it's just going to come back. Maybe this fix was a really good fix, and it's going to last you 15 years. But eventually the external temporary fixes are going to fall apart. You've got to go at the heart. That was something that when we were going through our parenting classes a couple of weeks ago that was one of the main things that he was talking about you can get kids to obey stuff i mean if you beat them long enough and hard enough you'll get them i mean again you can train a monkey to do a lot of stuff you know they used to train those elephants to like stand on balls and spin around and stuff you know all they had to do was hit them with a fire poker and you know it got them going you know it got them in the direction they wanted them to go so you can train people to do a lot of things
But as parents, that's not what we're after. We're not after just training external actions. We should want the heart to be there. I don't want you just to say you're sorry because that's what mommy and daddy expect or you're going to get a spanking because you hit your brother. I want you to truly feel remorse about hitting your brother, have a heart of compassion and remorse and desire to say, I'm sorry. And that kind of work, that comes from God. That's why when you're training them in that way, it's not just by external stuff. It's by saying, hey, we need to go pray about this. We need to see if God would not move in your heart, my heart, our heart, so that it will move us closer to the mark of that high calling we've been called to. So it's, in, it's the utmost importance that we go after the heart. And Jesus says it's about the heart. And we need to focus on the heart in everything that we do. So hopefully these things have been beneficial for us today and that hopefully we will try this week and be praying this week that God would work on our hearts to keep us away from just vain, traditional, religious stuff and instead give us that heart of compassion and mercy that He had that would drive us to truly follow after Him and what He has commanded us to do. So may God bless us to do that.